0: That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode.
1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to Tea Break Time Travel, where every month we look at a different archaeological object and take you on a journey into their past. (sighs) And welcome to episode seven of Tea Break Time Travel. I'm your host, Matilda Siebrecht, and today I'm savouring a, well, I, would, I was about to say simple, but not really simple, a chai tea latte, which is actually one of the most complicated drinks that I could have made from my tea shelf today. me on my tea break today is archaeologist Christopher Wakefield and you are a, a fellow Brit. so does that mean you're also a fellow tea drinker or are you more a coffee person?
2: I am sat here with a cup of Yorkshire tea which oh, is like my, my go-to, <laughs> go-to brand for my Yorkshire heritage so I feel obligated to enjoy this but we've we've got quite hard water where I am at the moment so I find it's definitely the best tea for for that kind of situation.
1: <laughs> I have to admit I'm not that good. Although, well, I'm not that good at differentiating between the black teas, but I can uh, notice if, for example, I have a cup of one and then someone changes it and I have a second cup. But I don't, I, I must admit, I don't really notice the difference between all the different black teas in like the Yorkshire's, the Tetley's, the English breakfast, the Earl Grey's. I don't
2: know. I'm Well, pre- prepare for a wave of feedback from listeners, <laughs> I'm sure, from that admission. <laughs> probably, probably. Oh, well, anyway.
1: Um, so, Chris, you are a archaeologist, you are have worked in archaeology, the digging side of things, you've worked in archaeological research, you've also now are working in kind of the outreach side of archaeological outreach. But how did you first get involved with archaeology? How did it all start for
2: Chris? Yeah I have a fairly sort of standard archaeological origin story in that I lived in a very historic part of North Yorkshire and when we were doing work in our garden we would often come across random archaeological objects typically from the medieval period and as a sort of seven eight year old child I thought this was the greatest thing that could ever happen and despite a lot of local museums being like we don't care we don't want to help you find out what any of the things you find are I just got really hooked on it and that led led to me becoming an archaeologist despite careers advisors throughout my school (laughs) saying this is the worst thing you can possibly do. You should be a lawyer.
1: (laughs) Do you I mean do you ever regret getting into archaeology? Do you ever have days where you're like, oh, I should have just done law.
2: Definitely not. Archaeology (laughs) is is one of those jobs where you get up every day and you don't know what's gonna happen. Everything is different. And from one week to the next you can be working on Roman landscape archaeology and then prehistoric flint spreads it's just such a great opportunity to do different things meet different people and find out awesome stuff so i Mm -hmm. am always banging the drum for people to get into archaeology
1: (laughs) well and i mean the uh, i guess the only thing because i have worked outside archaeology as well in between you know trying to find jobs because i guess that's the only problem with archaeology is that if you're trying to find work in it sometimes it can be quite tricky but even though something like, I don't know, being a lawyer or something like that. It gives you, you know, a nine till five, you have a set time, you, you've got a nice long-term contract, you've got, you know, good pay and all this kind of stuff. Not that I ever did law, but like I had jobs that were definitely more permanent. But then, I don't know, after a while, you sort of really enjoy the first month or two of having like a steady paycheck. And then after a while, you're like, oh, you know what, I just, it, I miss it. It's, it's not as interesting as, yeah, you know, archaeology.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. And just doing a job where you like every single thing with archaeology, you know, if you're digging a single feature, you're digging a pit, it's trying to find out the story of what that feature's history is. Yeah. And to me that constant kind of engagement of, of working things out and using the information and the skills that you have to actually find out about the period of that feature or the type of archaeology that you're dealing with, that I find really stimulating. Whereas I've done experience before in other areas and you know, sitting and doing a sort of day in, day out, nine to five job, I find so dull.
1: <laughs> no, I agree. It's more so like, I, I always tell people it's sort of like detective work, but you unfortunately never really know the final chapter and who actually did it. you know, <laughs> it's just, uh, you have to
2: work with what you've got basically. <laughs> Yeah, spoiler alert for this episode. You're probably not going to find out the proper answer for any of the stuff I'm talking about. What?
1: Why have I did you want as a guest? I only want people who can give me solid answers of exactly what happened in the past. Cool. So yeah, so it, no, that's uh, interesting to find out. Though. It's interesting. I always ask people how they first got involved in it because some people, it's just indeed something that's always interested them based on their background. But for, I guess, a lot of people, it was also like Egyptology or, you know, some people got into it from a very different perspective. My mom was kept telling me, I was the opposite to you. My mom and my career advisors were like, I feel like archaeology would be something really good for you. And I was like, no, I don't want to do it. And then at some point I was like, actually, yeah, this is very cool. And I, I think I want to do it. So uh, I, I'm always fascinated to hear the different paths that people take to get in into archaeology. And it's also interesting because so many people ask me at least, you know, how, how can I become an archaeologist? Like, what can I do to be an archaeologist? I don't know if you also get the same question.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's interesting because a lot of the people I speak to so many people say, oh, I used to want to be an archaeologist when I was a kid and then Mm -hmm. I kind of grew out of it and you're like, wow, you know, (laughs) drive by on my profession. (laughs) But yeah, a lot of people do ask that and I think in the UK it's really interesting that, we're in a, we're in a space at the moment where it's really easy to become an archaeologist there's yeah. loads and loads of work on at the moment we you know that we've got a real shortage of archaeologists actually and I think the best way people can get involved is by visiting local sites because there are so many projects out there at the moment that involve some community participation and there are lots of training courses that people can go on so I think really archaeology's been quite discoverable certainly in the UK landscape I know that's not always the case globally but it's you know it's a, it's a tough profession in terms of you know actually getting into that role because you typically have to have a degree but i know a lot of companies are now offering alternative pathways in there with apprenticeships and other schemes so i think hopefully it'll open that profession up a little bit more to to people who who want to experience that
1: that's really cool indeed because that is one of the problems indeed a lot of the i mean you can get i guess a lot of the sort of more lower tier jobs without necessarily needing a big qualification but especially if you want to continue for I guess, more interesting jobs, you know, and things and, and higher qualifications, you have to have the higher qualifications already, which requires paying to go to university and having the time to go to university and all this kind of stuff, which uh, yeah can be a little elitist still, I suppose. So it's nice to hear that they're, they're, they're starting other programs.
2: And and from my experience, you know, I I went and got a, you know, I did a lot of volunteering work in archaeology when I was sort of um, 16, 17 years old. Mm -hmm. Then I went away to university to study that. And Mm -hmm. I knew that after that initial degree, I didn't want to kind of go and do a, a postgraduate degree or anything straight away. I wanted to actually work in the field, get that experience and find out what it was like, get those skills that I needed. And then after doing that for sort of seven, eight years, I decided actually this is a great opportunity to go back. And now I know a specialist area that I'm really interested in to go back into. So I think it's quite a flexible profession in terms of, you know, you can kind of Spend time learning about what it is that you want and then kind of follow that up and go into more depth if that's something that you're interested in. Mm. Or if you just love digging and you just love doing the fieldwork side of things, then there are opportunities to go into more senior positions in those areas as well.
1: Yeah. And even in, within research as well, like you say, I mean, there's so many people who say to me, Oh, I'm doing my undergrad thesis. Like, do I already need to decide what I want to do for the rest of my like research career? And I mean, I know people who did like rock art for their undergrad and metallurgy for their masters and are now looking at like animal husbandry practices in somewhere for their PhD. So it's a very, like you say, it's a very flexible uh, degree, I guess, or or discipline, which is quite nice. So speaking of, so uh, you sort of first got into more the the practical side then of archaeology, but now your your main research focuses on archaeological outreach, which I personally, obviously, think is a very, very fascinating area. How did that come about? How did you get more into that side of things?
3: so i've
2: i've always been really passionate about archaeology and i'm definitely an archaeologist that thinks what's the point of doing all of the work that we're doing if we're not telling people who aren't archaeologists because exactly there is, <laughs> there is so much great archaeology out there and so often it is buried inside monographs and publications that are often behind paywalls, mm-hmm. and it's not in the format for people to, to really understand and, and digest and, and benefit from so I have just spent all my time talking to as many people about archaeology, whether they want to hear it or not. (laughs) I'll be standing at a bus stop and I'll be like, so have I told you about archaeology? (laughs) You know, I'll be be collecting a pizza and the the captive audience there will suddenly hear about the amazement of the Bronze Age and (laughs) the the Neolithic shift to agriculture or whatever there is. And I just (laughs) think that we have to go out there and particularly with all of the different kinds of technologies that we have now, whether they're online or digital, there are so many great opportunities to to actually get this information to people who are interested or maybe people who don't know about this and, and packaging up that in a more engaging way than and burying it in paragraphs talking about environmental conditions or scientific analysis. You know, I think there's great ways of, of presenting that in a form that is really really fun and gets some of the really amazing stuff that we used to do in the past known about.
1: Hmm. Which I mean, and it makes sense, right? Because so many other aspects of our life have developed and have changed. And I I always find it really interesting when you see you know like a car from 1900 versus a car now, and then you see. A schoolroom from 1900 and a schoolroom now, and a scientific paper from 1900 and a scientific paper. You know, so certain things, I think, definitely are in need of a bit of a redesign, shall we say?
2: And yeah, I mean, I love archaeology as a discipline, but I think it's got really reliant on like TV programs and mm. you know the kind of the formats of of archaeology that people are used to, mm. and that's great. You know, they've got brilliant. You can see they can be really visible. People can watch. programs and they can reach millions of people but at the same time those programs you've kind of watched one archaeological program you've kind of seen the format they have quite a template (laughs) Mm. and i think it's great that there are different avenues where you can maybe do things that don't involve focusing purely on the discovery of finds or mm. focus purely on the most exciting thing ever. Mm. You know, there's so much of archaeology that is about the day in and the day out and understanding how people live their lives. And to me, that's what's really exciting, but it's not necessarily the sexiest thing to put on your TV program when you can have people, <laughs> you know, doing a reenactment of sword fighting or, you know, mm. some kind of really grisly or gruesome thing or the biggest type of a, a site ever. You know, sometimes there's an opportunity for that every day. And I think that that's something that I'm really passionate about about talking to people with
1: yeah which i mean and that's also i mean why i started this this podcast too right is because uh, i i agree completely i think that there's so many interesting things about daily life that also happened in the past and uh, we should be able to talk about them so so the research that you're doing what i mean we just said you know what's the biggest what's the best what would you say is your most interesting results so far or something that you've kind of noticed or come across that's made you go huh
2: So for me, the UK is quite interesting because we do so much archaeology here in the UK in advance of development. So whether that's before houses are built or roads are are created. And a lot of that work is done as part of that construction process. And really, one of the things about my research is seeing how people in that environment where there's really quite a business focus on that. So it's really great actually having the chance to look at how other people are, are still finding the time and the space within those kind of quite Um, construction heavy environments to actually share their research and people are doing all sorts of really exciting stuff with social media platforms and creating accessible content and it's just really refreshing to see that people are willing to kind of engage with that and even though it might be difficult and time-consuming to do that or to have difficult conversations with people that might want to prioritize on getting things done and not necessarily sharing that it's just really fantastic to see that there are a lot of people who are out there trying to do that in different ways.
1: Hmm. So you do see an, an improvement coming?
2: It's a mixed field, I think it would be fair to say. But I'm, I'm definitely in a positive mood today. My glass is definitely half full rather than half empty. So I think that there are there are definitely barriers and there are difficulties with that. But some people are doing some really interesting work to to do that. And hopefully, when other people see that work and find out more about it, it will kind of give them the the ammunition and the impetus to, to try and do things like that themselves.
1: Hmm. Yeah, no, this really is fascinating research. I'm really interested to, to see uh, more results and uh, re- read up about what you're doing uh, when it's uh, getting towards the end. My standard question to to all the guests, uh, as this is, you know, uh, time travel uh, section, if you could travel back in time, where do you think you would go and why?
2: 100% prehistory. Definitely. Because Excellent. I love prehistory so much. It's fascinating. And it exemplifies what I think is great about archaeology in that we don't ever know anything for certain.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Everything in archaeology, it's about building up the most accurate interpretation we can on that evidence. So if I had the opportunity, I would definitely pick a prehistoric period because you know there are so many different ideas out there on all sorts of interesting things but whether i could narrow that down that would be super difficult because i would love to go back and see what was going on with causewood enclosures during the neolithic in britain what are these weird monuments why are they created the way they are mm-hmm. do they actually match up with any of the ideas that people write so many books and papers on or mm-hmm. is it something completely left field that we don't know about <laughs> or i would love to go back to the bronze age and find out what's going on around the deposition of metalwork in watery environments mm-hmm. you know Again, these these opportunities where you kind of you've got all of this physical materiality that that tells you that it was taking place, but having that chance to actually see something that is beyond the material and actually surrounding the the kind of beliefs or the systems around that process, they're the things that are so difficult to understand and interpret. And um, no matter what people do archaeologically, we're never going to have really good answers for that. And yeah. part of why I love it is that ambiguity. You know, there can be so many different viable and Really interesting hypotheses that people have come up with, but what we know, and they can change. You know, in five years' time, we might have another great interpretation that that someone has come up with that is completely different from anything that's come before it. And that I know a lot of people really don't like that uncertainty about archaeology, and (laughs) a lot of people feel that. People aren't able to comprehend that there are multiple interpretations or something. But mm-hmm. I think if you actually are really open about that process and say, we don't know, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this, and then let people make their own minds up about that, I think that's what's really exciting yeah. because that is part of making archaeology a more participative process and sharing people's different experiences and mm. seeing how they affect interpretations.
1: I could not agree more and I also agree so much with the, what you said in terms of that you know an idea that could be considered like oh yeah this is definitely the most likely solution could then years down the line actually be like oh no never mind because this new theory has come and this is actually way more possible and way more likely and like you say I think that's hard for some people to accept to get away from these kind of assumptions and and facts or, or whatever that have been kind of so ingrained in a particular field that then it, it's difficult to let go of. But I think that that's really important, not just in archaeology, but in life. So I think that it's a really nice metaphor for for life as well, really.
2: Yeah, definitely. You know, I think if you're ever having a conversation with an archaeologist and they're telling you that this 100% happened in the way that they're telling, I'd start to be, uh, you know, to, quote, to quote Wikipedia, <laughs> citation needed. <laughs>
1: One Exactly. And yeah, the the fact that there's multiple possibilities and yeah, it's always, I always like when I'm doing my little reels and then someone says like, oh, I'd heard this thing. And you're like, oh, I haven't heard about that one. But that's also a really cool idea. Like that, you know, could be. It's just that it's not something that an academic has published about yet necessarily. So I think that's, uh, yeah, it's always good fun. But uh, yeah, no, very nice. Prehistory, excellent. And speaking of prehistory, that's kind of where we're going back today, kind sort of the end, the end stages of prehistory. So we're going to journey back today to around 900 BC, to a settlement in what we now think of as eastern England, who knows what we, they would have thought of it then. The sun is sinking low on the horizon, reflecting in the water of the river. And set into this river are multiple wooden houses, balanced above the water on wooden stilts, and surrounded by a palisade ring of thick ash posts. One of these roundhouses is currently lit from the inside, the flickering light illuminating the objects heaped up outside. A stack of pots, some woven mats, and a large wooden wheel. But suddenly there are yells, crashes, the light increases as crackling fills the air, flames whoosh out into the darkening sky, thundering footsteps and splashes as the inhabitants of the houses rush to safety, watching in horror from the riverbank as the fire engulfs their home. And as the wooden stilts collapse, the fires are extinguished with a loud hiss, filling the air with smoke and steam. And soon it is all over. Silt pulled by the current of the river starts to cover up the sunken objects, gradually hiding the pots, the mats. And finally, the cracked wooden surface of the wheel, which might be a bit dramatic um, for, a, for a time travel event. But, you know, we like to make things big, pull in the crowds. Um, so that's the focus of today's episode. A little bit uh, more indirect is the wooden wheel that we mentioned. And so we'll get into the details of that soon. But first, I always like to have a look at the most asked questions on the Internet, courtesy of Google search, which there were surprisingly few actually about wooden wheels. I thought there would be more. The main one was how were wooden wheels made? Can you enlighten us at all, Chris?
2: So that's, yeah, really, really great question. Wheels are really interesting because there are so many different aspects to this depending on where you are in the world, from Asia to Europe to the Americas, potentially. It's a really interesting topic. Certainly in terms of Europe, wheels start to appear in Europe from around 3,500 BC, but they start off as solid wooden disc wheels to begin with. And it's only over time that they evolve into wheels that are made up of boards that are held together with braces, which is the kind of wheel that we're going to talk about in a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And then gradually sort of emerging around 1500 BC in Europe, you start to get spoked wheels, which are, I think, associated with chariots and that kind of technology, horse-drawn vehicles.
1: Mm. Okay, so the original ones would have been a lot more solid.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's what the, the evidence seemed to suggest. Okay. And it's only gradually with time that they become more complex and they evolve to sort of uh, meet more complicated needs for them with you know, faster moving vehicles, things like that.
1: Mm-hmm. And in the, I, I'm just thinking, because you mentioned it's made from like a solid bit of wood, so I guess that means that it's sort of a very big tree <laughs> rather than using lots of wooden boards. I mean, is that why we then see the start of wheels being made with boards rather than a single piece of wood, they'd cut down all the big trees.
2: Yeah, so, so if you're using boards, that certainly opens up a lot more possibilities in terms mm. of the, the, the size of the wheel you can make. So again, you get these this kind of board construction is, is quite typical, those tri-par type wheels that we tend to call them. Mm. So they're kind of one of the most common examples and they're the earliest type of wheel that are known for Britain, for example.
4: Yeah.
2: So again, they're they're sort of constructed from um, three large boards, and then they are sort of pinned together with dowels, which connect them together. And then on either face of the wheel, so the front and the back, there's a bracer that's usually secured to help keep all of those boards together and in position. Um, and they're secured together with dovetail joints, uh, braces, one on the front and one on the back. And then there are little dowels in between each of the boards that again help secure those together.
1: So that's indeed very complex. Actually, it's not just. Because I was immediately thinking like, oh yeah, but then the, so the earlier ones would have been much simpler, but actually probably <laughs> they're, they're even more complicated because they have so many more parts, I guess, than, than later wheels with the spokes potentially.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting sort of evolution of that technology, and particularly with things like the axle as well. Mm-hmm. So you've got a you know, there, there's a separate component there, which is fixed and then the axle will fit into that. So, you know, definitely it's it's really fascinating kind of getting these glimpses. And certainly in Europe, we've got some really good examples where uh, larger vehicles are actually preserved. Typically in Britain, wheels are a very, very rare find and they're often fragmentary as well. So it's really only on the content that we can actually look at some of these these better examples. But again, they're typically associated with slightly later periods. Okay, interesting.
1: Okay, well, so uh, the second question was a very strange one, but I thought I'd include it because it came up a couple of times.
2: Were wooden wheels silent? That's a really interesting question i'm not quite sure what people are getting at when they're typing that but it makes me think of of something that i find really fascinating actually is that i mentioned that wooden wheels are actually really rare to find in the archaeological record in britain Mm. but what we do tend to find are the tracks left behind by wheeled vehicles Mm. so this is something that i find really fascinating so actually when archaeologists are working on different sites, depending on the ground conditions, sometimes the the tracks that were made as those wheels went through, particularly wet or boggy landscapes, are actually preserved. So um, there's a site called Hesterton, one at Welland Bank, there's one at County Farm. So there are these sort of stretches of sometimes metres and metres where the the wheels uh, from the vehicle would have been left actually preserved and we can excavate those really carefully and that gives us information on how wide apart the wheels would have been spaced Uh, it gives us ideas of you know the actual diameter of the wheel thickness themselves so it's not actually an object that you're finding itself but it's the traces of that object being used that are left behind so kind of picturing those kind of wet and boggy environments you know there'll probably be quite a bit of you know kind of squelching and the, (laughs) the sound of those wheels moving through that landscape yeah. But, you know, this is a period where, you know, we're not having really complicated paved roads and anything like that. You know, there's these are vehicles that would have been moving through a landscape where roads would have been, you know, trackways rather than complicated surfaced roads.
1: Hmm. which i cuz i indeed the second that i think of i don't know a cart trundling along or anything like this i admit that i immediately think of more kind of medieval you know cobbled streets and then you have that kind of clack 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 you know sound coming through but of course that wouldn't have been the case in early prehistory,
2: but then you know the actual vehicle itself. A lot of that noise would come probably from that cart. You know the the fact that there's lots of you know there's moving parts on this. Mm. It would have had various different components associated with it. If it's being drawn by an animal as well, you're going to have you know that, that that. So I think that's a really interesting thing to me that. Often, as archaeologists, and when people think of the past, they tend to think of the, the physicality of it. They don't tend to think about the other senses, so the sounds and the smells, because we don't really have a lot of evidence for that. It's something that's much more difficult to get behind. Yeah. But actually, prehistory, we've had this really complicated soundscape of, of activities going on. Yeah. And I think no, that that's, that's really yeah, it's a really interesting question, It making me think about that
1: yeah yeah and it's also that you just mentioned smells as well and i'm just thinking you know that fantastic smell of the freshly cut wood and everything and can you imagine like a brand new cart and you're sitting in it and going along and the smell would be really nice and oh yeah and
2: the smell of the the animal that was drawing that vehicle so you know if if you've got you know i mean that's going to be that's that's a big part of this you know people's relationships with with animals are really interesting in this period so the idea of having a cart drawn by an ox or something like that that's you know that again that's another element that you, you don't tend to see that visually. We might have the wheel, but actually that would have been a vehicle that would have been drawn by an animal.
1: Yeah, yeah, true. Which, well, we can we can go into a bit more, we can, I'll ask you more about that in a bit because otherwise we'll, this section will be too long. Um, but uh, the last question, we'll go to the last question, which was very random, but it came up so many times when I, I basically type in like multiple variations of different word orders and things using wooden wheels and see what comes up. And this came up so many times when were wooden wheels used on furniture? Is this something you're familiar with?
2: I mean, I'm going to probably make myself look really ignorant by saying no. Yeah, right. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that's got, that's got to be some trend in furniture making. It must or be, right? It's got to be something like that. Because
1: but, I have no idea why practically in the past people would have put wheels on furniture.
2: I mean is it is it a decorative element when they're talking about wheels or Must are they actually be. talking about you know like a, a sort of medieval office chair
1: <laughs> just,
2: like the wheels going along in the bus yeah you know being being wheeled around your dining chamber in your great uh, hall.
1: I mean maybe that's what they no but then they say wooden wheels so indeed it's like it wasn't even just wheels it was wooden wheels specifically. I don't know. If anyone who's listening has any ideas what what this could have been meant by this question, please do write in and, and let us know. Because yeah, I was also a bit baffled. I thought maybe, indeed, I was just being ignorant, and you'd be like, oh, yes, the famous wheeled furniture of you know uh, the late Iron Age." But um,
2: I mean, speaking as someone who does a lot of prehistory stuff in Britain, we don't tend to have a lot of prehistoric furniture. So and and the <laughs> you know the little fragments and things that I know about uh, certainly don't come with attached wheels, as far as I know. Yeah.
1: yeah. No, may, I mean, true, maybe another another country somewhere. They It's a classic, typical of a particular cultural group. Anyway, well, anyway, if anyone knows, please do uh, write in.
3: Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
4: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer.
3: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the Fileo fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time.
4: And if you love the fillet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary.
1: Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Okay, so we know a little bit more about wheels in general, but perhaps we can expand a little bit on the the points we just made. So, for those of you who have just joined us, we chatted about the different styles of wheel that are made throughout the years and how they developed over time. But also the fact that if you think of something like a wheel, things like sound and smell and all of that kind of things, uh, it comes into play as well. So we already discussed the earliest evidence we have for wheels. I'm afraid I can't remember the date that you said, (laughs) some 3,000?
2: So generally, I think the the first solid wooden disc wheels can be seen in Europe around 3,500 BC. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of moves on to the sort of evolution and the tripartite wheel, which is made up of boards. And then spoked wheels tend to emerge around 1500 BC, and they tend to be associated with things like chariots.
1: Okay. And then uh, we we also mentioned the fact that, that the earliest wheels would likely have been used then in collaboration with kind of a cart or something that would have then been pulled by an animal. Is this something that's kind of generally agreed with in the archaeological record as well, or...?
2: yeah, it seems to be. So kind of carts seem to be a, a pretty major function for that. The complexity of those, I think, tends to change over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but interestingly, when you kind of get onto the sort of the evolution of the wheel and the, the wheel, the tripartite wheel made from the boards, there's a remarkable degree of similarity in those across Europe. So, there are kind of minor differences perhaps in in, you know, in size and slightly in the design, but lots of them have this really interesting sort of lunate set of holes either side of the axle. So, there seems to be kind of a bit of a stylistic element to them as well. You know, really? they, they're not just purely functional. There seems to be a kind of craft element and a different design that they tend to have. And that seems to be the case in Europe. And then when they make their way over to the Britain as well, when they start to appear here, we have similar examples.
1: Hmm. Okay, that's really interesting. And it's interesting as well, like you say, that it it sort of developed the same way, though, across different ones. So I mean, I guess in some ways, the the, the spoked wheel is more functionally superior to, to the solid wheel.
2: I'm not an expert on wheels, I'm afraid, so I couldn't couldn't directly comment on the efficiency of a spoked wheel as opposed to a tripartite one. I'm afraid
1: Uh, it would be really interesting to do experiments with that, no? Like, do I don't know what I don't know how you would do experiments. I guess do lots of different things with the different kinds of wheels and see which ones perform better? Yeah, I'm, well, I'm,
2: I'm sure people have really, you know, I'm sure there's, there's loads of information out there, but I'm guessing that the, the function seems to be pretty different. You know, with a cart, mm. you're kind of, you know, you're trundling along, it's transporting material, it's, you know, but when you're starting to get into kind of war chariots and things mm. like that, I'm guessing that speed and right. that, you know, that, that element is going to require something that's perhaps a little bit different.
1: Yeah, more manoeuvrable, perhaps. So indeed, so wheels, yeah, different, different designs for different functions, but also different designs for different cultures, which is uh, very interesting. And I imagine that because they're so specialized, I mean, we talked before about all the different, the dowels and the the braces and everything required, even in the sort of earlier form of wheels. So I'm guessing it was likely more of a specialized profession.
2: So this is this is really interesting, and uh, Must Farm, which is a site I'm probably going to talk about a little bit more, mm-hmm. which is this really interesting site. It's late Bronze Age, dates to pretty much eight hundred and fifty BC. We were very lucky to excavate there between twenty fifteen and sixteen, thanks to funding from the the landowner Terra and Historic England, who have, have funded the sort of excavation, post excavation publication. Mm-hmm. And in that settlement, it's a really interesting period because the late Bronze Age is. It's a kind of where still people are living in small groups, they're living in small settlements, but we don't necessarily tend to see a huge amount of specialization in terms of professions, because people had to have those skills to to be able to do things like creating simple pots, mm. doing simple woodwork, because that was such a big part of their life in terms of the day to day living. Mm. But interestingly, some of the material that we're finding at Musfarm. Does suggest that there is some specialization coming in. So some of the pottery, for example, is made to such a very fine degree that it could be made by, you know, a single individual who is focused on producing that. And it can be similar with the wheel. So the wheel itself was produced by someone who was definitely highly skilled. And the, the kind of the degree of complexity of things like the dovetail braces that hold the wheel together show a real knowledge of wood and of the techniques that they would use to make that. So interestingly with a with a kind of maybe a broader level within the settlement and perhaps within the period, that specialization doesn't come across you know as, as one of the main you know it's not really clear to see specialization really obviously across the late Bronze Age must farm but there are little things here and there hints that that might be beginning to start you know where people are focusing on doing certain things uh, and focused on on getting the skills specific to those crafts.
1: Interesting. Which also makes me wonder how it, I, I mean, I wonder this with all new technology forms, I guess, but I mean, how the first wheel even came about, you know, because even the first one must have been quite complex.
2: Definitely. And it's really interesting. So, you know, the, that, the, the ideas that, that And prehistory is great for this because it's a a period where new technologies are emerging all the time. And it's fascinating because we tend to think of prehistory as a period uh, and we've neatly defined as the Iron Age or the Mm. Bronze Age. (laughs) But actually, there's significant chunks of time. You know, there are hundreds of years, thousands of years in some cases. So this kind of evolution is quite a gradual process. But thinking about how quickly those ideas and those concepts can travel, Mm. it's something that can happen quite quickly. You know, if someone has... Experimented and made something that's really interesting and really useful and makes things much easier in your life or gives you new options, then it's easy to see how that idea and that technology can travel quite quickly.
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's it's something this that particular topic, that idea of kind of how ideas spread and how new things came about. I mean, it's just always been completely fascinating to me how things, because like you said, I mean, even the wheel, for example, what we just said. So the first one was you know between the design of the first one or the first one that we found, should we say, and the start of kind of spoked wheels was what, like 1500 years, 2000 years, something like that, which if you think back from where we are now is then almost to the, you know, Roman invading Britain. Like, it's, it's that period of time was between the invention of the first wheel, potentially, obviously we don't know exactly when it invented um, and the kind of development of what we would now consider wheels. To be, I don't know. It's yeah. I'm sorry, that was a very, very um, <laughs> un, un, uh, incoherent uh, ramble. But I just always find it really fascinating. There,
2: and and definitely. And I think that you know we're we're very lucky. A lot of the information I'm talking about today, I should say, it's kind of pre-publication. So some of it may be. You know, subject to change a little bit, or mm-hmm. perhaps I've got things slightly wrong in the translation, which so is just...
1: totally fine, right? As we said earlier, everything changes; nothing is completely right. So, you know. but
2: I'm, I'm putting a caveat in there. But we're, yeah. we're very, we're very fortunate <laughs> to have two really fantastic wood experts on there. Um, mm. One of whom is Mike Bamforth, and the other one is Iona robinson Zeki, who have worked with waterlogged wood and prehistoric wood for quite a long time, and they really know their stuff. Mm. And it's fascinating, you know, speaking to them and, and reading the stuff that they're doing because. Uh, looking at the the wood, for example, we know that the, the wheel from Must farm is made from alder mm-hmm. and that's a really interesting kind of option because looking back into there, was that something that was deliberately chosen or was it something that was available to people? You know, we have to start kind of thinking about these processes of material selection and knowledge. Mm-hmm. So, alder is an interesting wood and when you speak to to some people, they talk about that it's quite difficult to work with and they say, oh, I don't think I would have chosen that or... Um. You know, for various artifact types, but then there's there's some um, suggestion that actually alder is actually quite resistant to rot. And mm-hmm. if this is a wheel on a cart that's being used in a very wet environment or kind of waterlogged, muddy environments, then mm-hmm. was that wood actually chosen because there was a knowledge that alder is actually quite resistant to that, mm-hmm. or was it simply that there was lots of alder trees available and there wasn't really a huge amount of thought press going on into that? But you know, this is one of the things that we really are, are interested in, and a lot of the time, objects like this come up, like a wheel, and the a temptation to think, oh, that's a wheel. Great. No. But actually, the more you start to think about that, the more questions and queries come up, and the more information and analysis you can do on those objects, the more kind of lines of inquiry you have as an archaeologist to try and understand more about how the environment was used, how the environment was perceived, and that knowledge that people have. Because if someone is skilled enough as a woodworker to be able to produce an object like this, surely they're actually... Knowledgeable enough about wood types to to select the the types of wood that were going to be the best for these particular items, and mm. you know throughout the kind of assemblage there, we see different woods being used for different things.
1: Okay, interesting. And the by the way, I should probably say because I just realised we haven't actually specified. So the the place that we time travelled to was what is currently known as Must Farm, uh, a, a, a site uh, located in eastern England, which is pretty famous. You've probably heard of it, but just in case you haven't, uh, we will talk about it in a little bit more detail in the next section. But it's a fantastic preservation because it had this fire and then it fell into the to the water, which meant that so many fantastic objects were beautifully preserved, like a wooden wheel. Um, and was it just the one wheel that was found?
2: So it's really interesting because the, the site that we're talking about is a series of roundhouses built on stilts over a river channel. <laughs> so this is a really really watery environment mm-hmm. you know not only is the river itself full of water but the the area around it is very boggy and waterlogged and we know that from a lot of environmental data
1: mm-hmm.
2: and we actually found definitely two wheels um so okay. we found one which was i think a to date, it's the most complete Bronze Age wheel from Britain. although Another beautiful. And well, actually, it's interesting because just about one and a half miles away at Flag Fen, another wheel was found, uh, oh. which is actually slightly older. So we know that you know, again, in this very watery environment, the Flag Fen Basin is very, very waterlogged. It's part of the Fens. There, you know there are two wheels there. Oh. Uh, sorry, there's a wheel there, and we have our wheel at Must Farm. Mm-hmm. We have a fragment from another wheel so in total there's five artifacts that have been identified as potential cartwheels okay so in the middle of a river (laughs) yeah so this is the really curious thing so what on earth were these wheels doing in an you know Actually, inside a structure over one of these river channels.
1: Maybe w- they were attached to furniture.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but that's you know you kind of joke about that. But you know was was it the case that this wheel was either being manufactured or repaired in one mm. of these buildings, or could it have been the case that it was possibly being reused as some kind of secondary function, so mm. as something within these structures? you know, this is part of the interest that we have. And we know that because there was this big fire that you've described already, hmm. that we actually know that the wheel was actually in one of these structures because it has a really obvious charring pattern across the surface of that wheel. Mm-hmm. So, it wasn't like it was, you know, in the river or, or next to the, the settlement. It was actually inside one of these structures when it was burning. Oh. So, what it was doing there is part of that really interesting question. Yeah. You know, we, we don't really have a really good answer about that. But trying to find out more about that process and understand that is, is definitely something that we're, we're looking into.
1: And I guess, uh, unfortunately, something like wood, I'm trying to think, because obviously I do use analysis is my main, my main thing. So I'm immediately thinking, oh, I wonder what kind of, you know, use studies you could do on it. But something like wood is already so difficult to do that on, especially if it's been waterlogged and then especially if it's been burnt. But are, are there any plans to do anything like that? Or have there been any examinations like that on, on these items?
2: Yeah. So our specialist, Mike Bamforth, he's he's had a look at the wheel. And typically you can do kind of use wear analysis because wheels tend to wear in quite distinctive patterns. But some of the issues we have here is that charring pattern and that charring of the wheel has has kind of removed some of that detail, mm-hmm. but also the fact that it has been lying in a river channel with the sediments. Those sediments have kind of caused compression and slight distortion to the wood. Mm-hmm. So actually doing more detailed analysis of that with, you know, with this complexity of the, the charring and the compression makes more involved analysis of those use wear patterns very, very difficult.
1: Oh, such a shame. Can you see, uh, I mean, I, uh, you might not be able to see exactly the way that it has been used, but we sort of, I, I can imagine if, if a wheel has been used for a long time, maybe you'll see that, I don't know, the the inner edge is, is bigger than the outer edge. Is, is something like that possible to see, or is even that still a bit too
2: so on, on this particular example, there's nothing that's possible to oh, be, so yeah, me because like I say, it's, it's just, it, yeah. this is the thing with, with West Farm in particular. It's a fantastic excavation with so much detail and so much resolution that you never normally find from Bronze Age, late Bronze Age archaeology. Yeah, but yeah. at the same time, it gives you all of these amazing clues and all these tantalizing questions. Mm. But it also, unfortunately, it, you know, it, there's lots of stuff that we can't get And it's so frustrating because you're like, oh, you know, we're so close and we're getting so much further than we have done before, but there's still inevitably that that limit that you reach where you can only go so far.
1: Yeah, I mean, are there theories existing or or sort of future projects planned to investigate some theories about why indeed these these wheels might have been in this very river based bog based community, or is it still quite open to interpretation?
2: Well, I mean again it's just it's interesting because we've we've fully excavated the the settlement site there at Must Farm so we've we've pretty much dealt with and recorded all of the archaeology that's there so it's not like we're you know if we dug there again we'd find some more wheels you know, mm, we, right, we, we've we've yes. pretty much covered that but it's just interesting that i mentioned before a little bit about wheel tracks being found oh, yeah. so you know elsewhere in the fens on one occasion some wheel tracks have been found on a the site then at Flag Fen there is another wheel there so you know, we know that they're definitely being used in this landscape. But it's really interesting that, you know, if you looked at this on paper, you've got a really watery environment that's very, very boggy. You know, people yeah. are using boats. So elsewhere at Must Farm we found um, nine prehistoric log boats. Okay. So we know that those river channels are being used you know to, to get around that landscape. But it's interesting that, you know, also other vehicles are being used clearly because we're finding the wheels that are that are associated with with that kind of transport.
1: Yeah, interesting. I wonder if it's someone who's just you know come in and been like, well, back home we use carts, so I'm going to keep using carts, and all of the natives of Must Farm are thinking, all right, yeah, sure, go ahead.
2: <laughs> well, you know, I think it's it's fascinating because you know clearly they were really useful and they performed pretty well, and uh, you know, and it's people wouldn't have been doing it and we wouldn't find this evidence for them if they weren't you know, really valuable and important part of, of those kind of communities. Yeah, so yeah. it's just really interesting to us that when you find sites sites like this that have much more complete assemblages owing to the fantastic preservation that we've got, that you start to find things that you wouldn't necessarily expect. And that's mm. the Unexpected nature of archaeology that you know you think you can know almost everything there is to know about settlement types of a certain period, then something will pop up and throw a spanner in the works and be like, yeah. oh, actually, there are these aspects because the site itself at Must Farm, you know, the, the vast majority of, of of roundhouses from the late Bronze Age, they're terrestrial, they're built on a, mm-hmm. a dry land surface, but mm-hmm. yet here we've got this settlement that's popped up that's built on stilts, and it's mm-hmm. the only one of this date that's been found in Britain. There are examples in Europe that are very similar, but then bam, all of a sudden this one pops up. So again, this is part of the the real excitement about this particular site and also archaeology in general, that Mm -hmm. you're
3: always finding new things. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's.
4: Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49, perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any other offer.
3: Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: Well, so seeing as we have now been talking about Must Farm and, and the kind of interests surrounding that particular site in a little bit more detail, I mean, Chris, we introduced you and your background a little bit more in the first section of the episode, but uh, you have indeed worked at the Fantastically Preserved must farm so i think it would be remiss of us not to talk more about that site and also as you mentioned there's a lot of other really interesting wooden objects that have been discovered there so can you give some examples what what other kinds of things have, have been found that are particularly interesting or or uh, different to what we know of from other sites perhaps
2: yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, in total, um, we did an, an evaluation in 2006, and then that was expanded into a, a bigger excavation between 2015 and sixteen, And we found, I think, just under 200 wooden artifacts, um, all from the Late Bronze Age. Wow. So the majority of them from the actual duration of the settlement around 850 BC. So typically, when you find any normal Bronze Age site in the UK, you will find you know, very, very ephemeral evidence, particularly if the settlement is moved on, you get some fragments of pottery, you get some animal bone, you get some post holes, things like that. Mm -hmm. But here we had the incredible fortune of finding an environment which had a huge fire which caused a lot of that wooden material to kind of have a a charring pattern on the outside of it and that charring almost acted like a bit of a shield to protect that from from decay mm-hmm. and then a lot of that material then became waterlogged as it dropped into that river channel and was buried by some really fantastic sediments that covered it
0: mm-hmm. so we
2: have Almost ideal preservation conditions for organic material, and that Mm. includes wood, but also some things like uh, coprolites and Uh, uh, textiles as well. Wow! wow. And within that wooden assemblage, we had you know a really interesting range of of different objects. So we have things like the the wheel. We've had fragments of boat. Um, Elsewhere in the channel, we have full log boats which are currently being preserved at Flag Fen, Hmm. but we also have. Lots and lots of other smaller objects. So we had forty bobbins, so little small pieces of wood around which textile had been wrapped and stored. Amazing. Which are, you know, they're incredible. They'll fit into the the palm of your hand. They're yeah. you know, a couple of centimeters in size. <sighs> they're just the most delicate and beautiful objects. Mm. We've got containers, um, so they can range from. We had one of the most finely finished wooden artifacts that was probably also the product of a specialist. Woodworker was a little box. Mm-hmm. So, really, really tiny objects which had beautiful, sort of recess style decorations on it and so would we'll probably have had a lid that would have fitted into the top of it. One of the first things that people asked me is what was inside the box, and it was empty. So, I can't <gasps> tell you what it would have been used for. <laughs> but again, a really beautiful little object. Oh, but amazing. also things like Bucket bases, mm. wooden buckets, which I think we had about fifteen of those, something like that. We had troughs that would probably have been used for food storage and food preparation. We had chopping boards as well, which still had the, you know, the actual individual chopping marks where people have been preparing things on them. You know, and these are things that are pretty much three thousand years old and they <sighs> give you this real connection when you're mm. when you're finding them and looking at them. And again, some of the bucket bases you know, they would have been used as a bucket, but we've looking at them. People would have probably turned them upside down, and on the base of those, used them as kind of an impromptu chopping board for, mm-hmm. for processing stuff. So, you just get these really nice moments of kind of glimpses into activities that were actually going on, and little moments in time that have been captured.
1: Mm-hmm. And I, I should say as well, I mean, we we did just briefly mention it, but for those listening in who are not archaeologists or have have no archaeological sort of uh, knowledge in terms of of field work basically organic objects such as wooden objects very, very rarely survive in the archeological record. They survive if it's freezing cold. So for example, where I work up in the Arctic, I mean, they didn't have wood, but uh, if they did, that would be nicely preserved. We do find some pieces. Very arid environments also often have uh, quite nice wood preservation. So quite often in deserts, you will also find some wood and in waterlogged conditions. So that's why we're getting so excited um, about this, uh, this must farm. And in terms of, for example, the excavation, because obviously it's dumped in the water, it was nicely charred, which already gave it that protection, dumped in the water, which gave it even more protection, kept there for thousands of years, and then is suddenly exposed <laughs> to the environment. What happens like logistically in terms of the excavation of these kinds of objects yeah, for, as, as an archaeologist? <laughs>
2: So yeah, definitely. One of the the key things is as soon as that object is exposed, the best thing you can do is to keep it waterlogged. Because the minute that that starts to dry out, it starts to decay, and you'll potentially lose really valuable and important information about that. So. One of the things when we were excavating it we were spraying the entire area with water we actually were very lucky to actually have a sort of covered environment over the top of it to help keep everything really moist and keep Mm -hmm. those moisture levels really high and as soon as it's in a position to be lifted and taken out then that will go into conservation where over time various things will be done to to change that and replace those waters with other materials like resins and uh, things Mm -hmm. like that to stabilize that so that object can be preserved and shown in museums or in in Kind of everyday environments
1: interesting, okay, yeah, because I can imagine I remember when we were excavating from the Arctic and if we found we did find one or two wooden things now that I'm thinking about it and indeed we had to wrap them immediately in moss and try and you know put them straight in a sealed bag to try and keep the moisture levels basically but I can imagine if you're finding hundreds of wooden objects that must have been I mean amazing but also quite stressful I can imagine.
2: I mean, it's fascinating, you know, everything that was coming out. In in total, you know, if we imagine, we're not just finding the wooden objects themselves; we're finding all of the architecture associated with that that settlement and those houses. Mm. So, parts of the, you know, the the construction of the site. So the posts that have been driven into the river channel the actual roof you know parts that made the roof and we even were finding all of the individual wood chips that have been preserved from the construction of the settlement Amazing. so i can't give you an exact number now but it was you know something like 6000 plus pieces of wood that we recorded Oof. over the excavation
1: I need a so lot of moss.
2: <laughs> yeah and again that's everything down from the smallest wood chips yeah, up to yeah. these you know huge timbers some of which were meters long <sighs> incredible and excavating that Dense cluster of material was so difficult. We actually had to create scaffold frames because we couldn't walk over any of the excavation area for fear of damaging any of the the waterlogged material or any of Mm -hmm. those very fragile objects. So we effectively created an entire platform that we had to kind of lie on, then lean down and gradually excavate the sediments off and excavate and record all of those different artifacts. So it was a very, very complex process that was Mm -hmm. pretty physically demanding.
1: I mean, can you use a trowel or do you have to use like a specialized tool?
2: So absolutely, you can't use any metal objects. I can wood imagine because yeah. <laughs> you know, if you imagine these are very, very—it's effectively waterlogged wood, so they're very, very soft. In mm. a lot of a lot of cases, these artifacts. So you actually have to use other wooden tools to be able to work with them, and even okay. so, you have to do them incredibly carefully. So we often use things like wooden clay sculpting tools because mm. they're quite—they're um, not too sharp. They're quite general, so you can gradually remove a lot of that sediment away. Mm-hmm. But it's a very, very painstaking process, and something that requires. Yeah, you know, the excavation team that worked on it were, were phenomenally skilled.
3: Yeah, um, I can imagine. you know they're
2: archaeologists with a lot of experience. But even so, within that, having that ability to work with waterlogged wood is something that is is really valuable. So the whole excavation team did a fantastic job throughout it, and we were yeah we we were really lucky to have a really good experienced team to, to yeah. work with that.
1: And I can do, I'm I'm just really curious now. I haven't done loads and loads of field work, so I'm not experienced at all. But I'm just curious because I mean, what I think of is, you, you know, you try to remove as much of the dirt as possible and then you get to something and then you're like, ah oh, cool. And then you go into more detail. If it's such a compacted site or, or what, what do I want to say? Not compacted. If it's, if there's so much stuff at the site, basically, and you know, so many layers and all this kind of thing, I guess you can't just be like, ah, well, this is clearly just a big section of dirt. Let's just get rid of it. I can imagine you have to go down at, you know, millimeter layers, or is that something that I'm just making up? <laughs>
2: So it's it's really interesting there are lots of various different ways to excavate and in the UK we tend to try and do it by context so we call it single context recording. Mm-hmm. Um, elsewhere, people sometimes do a technique called spitting, where you arbitrarily select a, a depth that you're going to remove, and then you kind of go down and record it in a, each of those layers.
1: <laughs> I thought not, not, that's not a way to keep it waterlogged, It's just constantly spitting at these <laughs> so.
2: No, no, it's not. <laughs> okay, sorry. Okay. <laughs> but we, we were quite lucky in the way that the, the site actually formed. So, the actual process of that destruction created really distinct layers for us. Mm-hmm. So, when the, the these buildings on stilts burnt, one of the first things that would have happened is the floors of the structures would have burnt out and that content dropped down into the water. Mm -hmm. And then as the remainder of those structures then kind of were were charred and and collapsed, that created effectively a capping layer that went over the top of everything. So you effectively have like the, the kind of destruction deposit and then you have a lot of the material kind of underneath that so we divided the site up into different sections to make sure we were you know so for example some of the buildings we would dig those in quadrants to help inform the excavation of the the other parts of that building and the site if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But as we went down through those layers, we did it effectively by the sequences that happened. So, the, the kind of destruction material that that effectively landed on top of everything was carefully recorded and, and, and taken away. And then the material, so the, the kind of contents of, of those structures were forming a distinct layer beneath that. Mm-hmm. And then interestingly, Underneath that layer was the the kind of early occupation of the site, so that predated the fire. So the kind of we call them middens, although they were kind of middens that were still being formed. Because one mm-hmm. of the interesting things we can probably talk about is that the site was very very short lived. It probably only lasted around six months after it was built to before it was destroyed in the fire.
1: <gasps> okay. Oh, that must have been so disheartening.
2: Well, I mean, that raises interesting questions about the nature of the fire, because this is a big event that we've talked a lot about in, in creating the preservation conditions and, and bringing the, the life of site to the end. Yeah. But the big question is, why did this fire happen? Yeah. And that's something that through all of the analysis and the data that we've gathered, we're hoping to try and get a closer to. But it, it, it's whether or not you think that the fire could have been accidental or whether, <sighs> whether or not it was intentional.
1: Oh. By the wheelmaker <laughs> going, right, you're not using my wheels, you're just using boats all the time.
2: And you know, it's it's a real curious event because you know, if you think that this was, you know, an accident, which is quite you know, it's a big accident for a fire to happen yeah. and destroy an entire settlement, each of those buildings burned. Yeah. So it you know, this is a really interesting thing. Because maybe it's if- an
1: ultimate deposition in water, you know, that we were just talking about Bronze Age water depositions, right? And, you know, maybe this is the ultimate w- watery deposition. <laughs>
2: It, it could be, but why live in why live in it for six months if this was something that was constructed perhaps for some kind of, you know, votive offering or something like that? <sighs> you know, there's so many questions associated with this. A lot of people are really keen to maybe think that it was, you know, some kind of really violent martial attack that people, mm. you know, swept in, burnt the whole settlement down. But if that was the case, we don't have any human remains from the site, so there's no yeah, evidence that people were killed during this fire. <laughs> you know, it's there's there's so many different options and interpretations that we're we're throwing around and we're interested in Um, so
1: interesting well okay we 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 mustn't go into too much detail because we're going to do a a special bonus segment on must farm so for those of you that was a little teaser uh if if you're interested in learning more have a check out the bonus segment after this episode so let us return to wood (laughs) you already mentioned that there were a lot of of bobbins found at the site is that the most common object or is there another object that's sort of more more commonly found on site
2: so that's Oh, that's a good question. What the the most common wooden type of artifact was found? So uh, we had uh, fifty nine hafts and handles so ah, they can be yeah. things like hafts of axes. Um, one of the most spectacular finds we were lucky enough to find was a, a fully hafted axe, socketed Amazing. axe, which again, that predated the actual fire of the settlement. We think was probably deposited after the construction okay. underneath one of the roundhouses as, as okay. potentially a, a place deposit or an intentional deposit. Mm-hmm. So that was really fantastic, seeing a lot of these materials.
1: Which I also find because this is something I'm curious in your opinion on this, because we all I remember chatting to someone and they were like, "Oh, but it's always so funny because there's these beautifully made you know flint axe heads or or all of this kind of stuff, but then the the wooden handle is just boring, and I was going, What do you mean, and in so many museums and things' It used to be that you know if they provided the the handle to go with these flint axes, for example, it would just be like a warped branch, and it wouldn't be anything that's that's cleverly made, but so I can imagine it must farm their their proper handles I mean are they, are they also beautifully made are they just rough bits of wood
2: well that's that, I mean that's really interesting because I think that you know all of that the kind of hafts and handles and you know that they're found from prehistory. They're not a particularly common find, but they're not really unusual. We've there are quite a few known examples from Mm -hmm. well, Britain, certainly from Europe. And what tends to be associated with them is people finding side branches from trees that have roughly the right angle. Mm. that would have you know been been ideal for using with a socketed axe but the the complete axe that i was mentioning is actually made of two parts uh-huh. so there's the main kind of handle of the the haft itself and then the head of it actually has a, a socket in where you can actually slot in the axe head itself to a oh, separate okay. piece of wood so it's in two different stages mm. so there's the potential idea that that handle removes the need to find a, a side branch of the correct angle because um, you can just, you know, if, if you wanted to use a different axe head at a different angle or using an adz instead of an axe, for example, you could just pull out that head, stick another one in with the correct angle of wood in and then secure it and then go about doing your business. Then if you wanted to switch back, you could swap the axe head in kind of like, you know, one of the screwdrivers you get now that has, yeah. you know, different, you can slot in a different head different depending heads. on whether you need a Phillips head or a flat head.
1: That so, is amazing.
2: You know, again, things like this popping up that are really, really interesting. And oh, yeah. the axe head itself is made from field maple, which you know is quite an interesting wood. Um, so, something that-
1: so the head, the, also the axe head, is also wood.
2: Sorry, no. the The actual socket axe itself is bronze. Right, uh, okay. Sorry. Uh, but yes. that that, fit, that fits into a a piece of wood, ah, the head. And, then piece of, yes, and then that piece, and then that piece of wood fits into the actual haft of the axe Got itself. Yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. Oh wow. A maple.
2: Yeah, field maple. Yeah, really interesting.
1: Oh. Beautiful. Which, again, is something that, you know, that that little insight, like you were saying, we wouldn't have if it wasn't this beautifully preserved site. I mean, so many wooden objects are lost at at archaeological sites. So who knows how many other incredible, uh, you know, tools with interchangeable heads or all of these sort of things are happening across the UK, across Europe, across the world, but we just don't find them in the archaeological record.
2: Yeah. I mean, we, you know, socketed sort of bronze axe heads are one of the most you know, visually recognizable components of the of the Bronze Age period, mm. and you know it, they they were only a part of the original artifact. They, mm. You know, and again, when you think about the percentage of that artifact they would have constituted, the actual handle and the haft itself are much bigger, and mm. we just typically never ever find that unless we're very fortunate with preservation conditions. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting mentioning another bucket that we found. We found a wooden bucket, and within that bucket, there were loads of pieces of broken metal. So oh. we know, you know, again, speaking about little moments that you can get glimpses of, people were obviously gathering together waste, metal, ready to recycle it and to melt mm. it down and create new objects. Yeah. And again, finding those gathered within a wooden bucket is such a unusual thing that you're seeing and, and kind of shows that these wooden objects really relate to other artifact types and were used in different ways.
1: Yeah, but, uh, true. Because I suppose that's also something that I guess happens quite can happen quite often, or at least did used to happen, was that, you know, there'd be one amazing artifact that was found and that artifact was kind of lifted up above all others and gone, oh, wow, look at this fantastic thing. And, you know, this was exciting. But indeed, all of the artifacts, I mean, if you think even just of, of yourself around the house, there's so many different things that are used together in, in different ways as well, which is, is, I suppose, something that not is not always considered when looking at sites that have limited preservation or do not have all of the artifacts there that would have been used
2: definitely and that that's another interesting facet of mass farm is that we don't have everything by all means mm. yeah there are things that we don't have at the site we've got a remarkable degree of preservation in terms of textiles wood some environmental evidence, pottery, some of which contains food contents and residues. All mm-hmm. you know, we've got this huge set of stuff, but there's still a lot of material that we we don't see. So we don't see animal skins, for example, oh. which you know we've got plenty of evidence of animal bone and things like that mm-hmm. from their diet. But there are various things that don't really necessarily survive um, owing to the the pH conditions, so the acidity or the alkaline yes. nature of the water. Mm-hmm. So you know, this is very much not a complete. Vision of the Bronze Age. It's still fragmentary. And then the nature of the fire, a lot of those materials have survived, but again, a significant amount of them probably have been completely destroyed in that fire, and we don't necessarily know what hasn't survived necessarily because Mm. it's not there. Yeah. (laughs) So the way I like to kind of think about it is it feels like we've got a Lego set that someone has taken away an unknown number of pieces (laughs) um, and we don't have the picture on the box or the instructions to work with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So
2: it's this this kind of process (laughs) where we're trying to almost reverse engineer what happened, Mm -hmm. but only from an incomplete evidence. And part of our challenge really is to try and understand what we do have and work out what's missing, which to be honest, it's a really interesting process,
1: especially because a lot of the time things might be missing that we didn't even consider because they're not something that we use anymore, or they're not something that we consider as being important, but would have been essential if a prehistoric people or something like that.
2: A hundred percent. You know, there is we're finding a lot of things that must farm that people wouldn't necessarily have associated, or they are objects that are unusual, and undoubtedly there would have been more there that you know we we don't necessarily have. That evidence for. And we yeah. were very, very lucky to, to have these really interesting set of preservation conditions that meant we could see a lot. Mm-hmm. But, you know, imagine if you you had conditions that meant that all of it had survived, or oh. you know, much more of it had survived. And that's always yeah. that challenge for archaeology, mm-hmm. that probably somewhere in the future someone will find a more complete, more preserved Bronze Age site. And it'll be really interesting to see how that relates to what we have and how that relates to normal Bronze Age sites on dryland contexts.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's also, yeah, there's so many different, fa- I mean, and there's so much hidden still, like you say, as well within archaeology. So it's uh, oh, such a, a very interesting topic. However... I see that uh, I think we're coming to the end of our tea break. We should probably uh, head back uh, to the present day and go back to work. (laughs) Um, But uh, thank you so, so much for joining me today, Chris, and talking about uh, all of this stuff. It's a pleasure. And if anyone wants to find out more about Chris's research work on outreach or about wheels or wooden objects or must farm, you can check the show notes on the podcast homepage. And if you're a member of the Archaeology Podcast Network, you can also access a very special bonus segment where Chris will chat more about the site of Must Farm and may even give some juicy behind the scenes information. You never know. If you're not a member, you can easily join through the APN website, also linked in the show notes, uh, to get access to ad free episodes as well as all kinds of bonus material and even you get some physical swag very nice t-shirts magnets etc so do definitely check that out it's a very nice community but yeah apart from that thank you again chris and uh, that's all for now see you next time i hope that you enjoyed our journey today if you did make sure to like follow subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and i'll see you next month for another episode of tea break time travel